Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to an episode of New Books Network. Um, I'm your host for this episode. Uh, my name is Matthias Fueling. I'm a PhD candidate in history at Temple um, University. And I have the great honor and privilege, and I'm really excited to interview uh, Terry Renault today. Uh, Terry is a lecturer um, at Yale, and he just came out with a great new book, New Lefts, The Making of a Radical Tradition, um, which we will be discussing for the rest of the episode, which gives a kind of Alternatively, reading the book, um, it's billed as an alternative history of socialism, a kind of prehistory of the 1960s New Left movement in Europe, primarily Germany and North America. But there's so much more going on in this book, and I'm really excited uh, to talk about it. So, Terry, how about you tell me about yourself? How did you sort of your your background? How did you get involved in this project, uh, particularly reading the book? I found this to be like a very personal book. You're very you know, this is very personal motivation, your acknowledgments. I mean, you mentioned thanking like your, your middle school um, history teacher, if I recall. There's a lot of like very personal, passionate kind of interest in this book. So I'm wondering if you kind of guide us through what led you to writing New Lefts. Well, thank you very much for having me on the program. Um, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to elaborate on my background because um, uh, it may not be very interesting to the listeners, but um, I was reminded by your question of one of my, um, uh, my, my PhD advisors at UC Berkeley, Rob Kaufman, who's a professor in comparative literature. Uh, one time he asked me whether I'm a red diaper baby. He just kind of assumed that I was interested in the history of the left um, maybe I had uh, family members who were involved in the communist movements or in some way involved in the history, you know, of organized labor or the left. That's not the case at all. You know, I come from middle class background, Albany, New York, very unpoliticized, unradicalized. Mm-hmm. Um, so my interest in the history of the left began as intellectual affinity. Um, I was an undergraduate student at Boston University, and I took a few courses with James Schmidt there, who um, is mostly known as a historian of the European Enlightenment, but he wrote his first book on um, Merleau-Ponty and French phenomenology. He was very much involved in the sort of Talos debates of the 1970s, so the sort of reception of Western Marxism in the United States in that decade. And uh, he was the one who sort of pointed me toward... Um, UC Berkeley for graduate school, where I ended up working with Martin Jay. And that's sort of where I became, uh, you know, um, enmeshed or, or very much kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, cultured into the history of Western Marxism. And, um, uh, and this project sort of grew out of that. Um, uh, and so, uh, yes, um, I don't think there are actual biographical connections. Um, it's only, maybe an, it's a negation of my background writing about this history of radical youths because I was not very radical in my own youth. Okay, I see. 
And I, what's interesting about this book is the way you bill it in your introduction. You call it an intervention in four, you know, very similarly related fields. Um, they overlap, but they're not always exactly the same thing. So you build this as first and foremost, right? It's a history of the European left in the 20th century, from roughly the end of World War One up through 1968. Then you also bill it as a contribution to German intellectual history. You're sort of broadening the horizon and going in greater depth in this radical group, New Beginning, or or the organization. Um, it kind of had these differing names over its time in in when it existed. And then you also have, um, it engages in history of Western Marxism. And then also, I think most importantly in your book, history of left-wing political organization. So I, let's try, I'm going to think if we can maybe kind of like go through the book a little sequentially and talk about how do you see your book as an intervention in each of these separate debates. So firstly, right, how do you see this book contributing to the history of, of like intellectual European history? Like what is, what is it about your book that you're engaging with there? Well, European intellectual history is a sub-discipline um, that has many different methods and approaches. Um, this, the sort of Berkeley school, I guess, if you want to think of it that way around Martin Jay, uh, valued a synoptic approach to writing about major ideas and thinkers in their context. Um, and that kind of led me to conceive of the dissertation in the book in ambitious terms. I wanted to not focus on any one particular intellectual. Um, I didn't think at the time, and you know, I started my PhD in 2009, so very much in the wake of the 2008 crisis, I didn't think it was the time to write another book on Adorno, for example. You know, I wanted to uh, find um, subjects or a dissertation who were more politically engaged or perhaps whose ideas developed much in a much more grounded sense within the organizations of the left or the labor movement in Germany. That's kind of where I, where I started looking and then geographically expanded from there. Uh, and um, methodologically, too, um, I, maybe this was a bit of a, of a, of a, I don't want to say, uh, hesitance or rejection of my advisor's approach, but, uh, it, it was sort of, um, you know, uh, at, at Berkeley, I also took a number of courses with some great social and cultural historians. And so I really, um, wanted to explore the media, the institutions, the general context in which ideas develop. Um, and rather than focusing on any one particular person. So in terms of my intervention into the sub-discipline of German intellectual history, say, um, you know, I, I focus on what I call insider intellectuals in this book, um, names that may not be so recognizable to general, you know, uh, pe people who know generally about the history of the left even, um, but who were quite uh, influential in their time in uh, writing policy for, for political parties or otherwise uh, sort of um, actually carrying out a radical political agenda um, in small sectarian groups uh, and pushing theoretical debates forward uh, all the while engaged in, in some kind of political activism. This is not the only way to do intellectual history, of course. Um, I think it sort of privileges in a way the the 
you know, the work of intellectuals who see themselves as engaged or committed to a cause. Um, there are, you know, other, other subjects that are worthy of attention, but, um, you know, uh, there's some great work recently. Um, and I'm thinking of, for example, um, the historians, Quinn Slobodian or Daniel Bessner, um, who in a way are intellectual historians, but whose books have, um, always considered the institutional contexts, um, in fact, the institution building uh, ambitions of intellectuals and not simply the ideas uh, considered in some kind of abstraction from society. So I see myself as in conversation with intellectual historians like that. Okay. Yeah, because when I was reading the book, I was really struck that you are, as you said, you're sort of moving away from, I guess we could think of it almost as a more kind of Mandarin style intellectual history focusing on say for example like martin jay your advisor did frankfurt school right and the dialectical imagination is you know this kind of epochal classic right everyone kind of has to read that and yet what's fascinating it usually right is that in talking about histories of the new left or where did the new left come from right i mean everyone's like okay it's like it's marcuse it's this older generation of german intellectuals who survived the war who are now like being picked up again by the german youth and they're having this worldwide influence etc cetera, etc cetera. And you are saying, no, it's not, it's not a story of these big sort of famous intellectuals per se. There are organizational, there are institutional roots. There are these figures that exist also in a kind of, the way you frame it, I think is really beautiful, like this kind of dialectical genera- generational relationship. Um, and so I want to go more into this kind of, in more in depth about this, where you talk about this organization, literally called the organization, and then it becomes another group called the New Beginning. And I was really blown away reading about this. I, you know, I flatter myself. I know a little bit about the German left in the interwar period. I had never heard of this group. And it was incredible. They infiltrated, seemingly from, from what I could tell, every sector of German society. They had infiltrated the Hitler Youth, the Communist Party, the Social Democratic Party, the trade unions, the professional organizations. So I was wondering if you could tell me about how does the, this group, this new beginning movement, how does it fit into your story that you're trying to tell in the book? And how does it lay the groundwork for, uh, I guess, the new left that we think of classically in the 1960s? Uh, well, that's in many ways the, the central question of the book. The dissertation was focused on uh, the history of this group, which, as you say, um, was originally called, called the Leninist Organization, or simply the Org, for short. It formed in Berlin around 1930, so um, a, a couple of years before the collapse of the Weimar Republic. Um, and it was the project of uh, a bunch of renegade leftists. Most of them were former members of the Communist Party or members of the Communist Party opposition, which had formed in 1928 due to some internal politics, uh, which sort of pushed out the right opposition. Um, you know, I don't know how valuable a detailed discussion of, you know, these various factions would be for the podcast, but the, the, this group, um, uh, the Leninist organization was founded by Walter Lervenheim. Um, uh, it had this, notion that um, by returning to some of the conspiratorial tactics that were theorized by Lenin um, uh, circa 1902, you know, in texts like What is to be Done, a small group of, uh, you know, highly schooled 
um, operators uh, might acquire positions of influence within the two major parties of the left in Germany at the time, that is the Social Democratic Party and the Communist Party, and kind of surreptitiously guide their respective politics toward a unity program um, uh, that would unite these two parties of the left, which have been tragically divided in the course of World War I um, and in this, you know, over the course of the 1920s. Um, and this unity program uh, was seen by the uh, members of this small group, the Leninist organization, which never comprised, you know, at its peak, more than one, a couple of hundred core members, which with a penumbra of, you know, maybe a couple thousand uh, sympathizers. Uh, they believed this was the only way to combat the rise of fascism. And I guess the, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, it's sort of uh, the unique quality of this Leninist positioning was that they believed they were, um, you know, turning Leninist ideology critique and organizational tactics against the communists who had claimed this legacy as their own. But by that point, um, you know, uh, according to the, you know, the, the Leninist organization, which would become known as New Beginning or the, the New Beginning Group um, within a few years, uh, the communists had, um, you know, uh, uh, derailed a bit um, in, uh, you know, especially in the era of the social fascism, the, you know, uh, uh, interpretation of, you know, uh, social democracy, which essentially ruled out any kind of um, coalition or cooperation with the social democrats. So there was theoretical disagreements with the communists about their definition of fascism. The, uh, the New Beginning crowd thought that fascism was genuinely a mass movement. It should not be seen as merely like, you know, uh, the a reactionary clique of uh, uh, you know serving the interest of finance capital or, or you know whatever Dmitriev's definition of fascism was uh, you know circa 1935 you know this was a genuinely mass movement um, which attracted supporters from all social classes including the working class and it would take some serious reschooling reeducation. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of internal, internally, uh, internal organizational reworking, uh, in order to combat the fascist threat. So all this was conceived in 1930 or 31. Um, and then in 33, like abruptly the priorities of the group would change. Uh, uh, the new beginning group became, uh, an underground anti-fascist organization, um, which, uh, not only operated in Germany, uh, and its primary role there was to sort of clandestinely collect intelligence about all sectors of Nazi German economy, social life, and then compile this information into reports that would be published abroad. But the New Beginning Group also had quite an extensive network of contacts outside of Germany in the various emigre capitals of Prague, Paris, London, and then later New York where they tried to curry favor with the socialists and, uh, you know, labor left in those locations in order to raise money for the group, but also to generally build up um, support for a sort of socialist third way, a socialist unity program um, that, uh, 
would neither be in complete alignment with the Stalinist communist left, nor in, in alignment with what they view to be sort of the abject reformism of social democracy. And yeah, and it's fascinating that the way you sort of tell your story is that this group internally at its at its in the, at the time it's actually active in the 1930s. It's not a mass organization, as you said. It's very small. Um, you know, it's a very tiny membership. But it ends up having this massive outsized influence after the war through, and you really chart this, I think, really beautifully, through the massive influence that all of these various affiliated intellectuals, who at one point or another were members of the org or they were members of, of the New Beginning movement, after the war in West Germany, they have massive influence on the student movement. And I'm wondering if you could sort of tell that, like, if you could frame that for us of how you, you sort of tied that together, because the way I read the book is that you're saying that this new left, uh, the 1960s comes out of this new beginning movement, which in its own time in the interwar period was a kind of new left itself. It was trying to find a different way to do socialism. And they thought of themselves as sort of dissident socialists, dissident communists, they were not members of the Social Democrats. They were not Communist Party members, but they still thought of themselves as proper revolutionary Marxists. Um, you know, and and you talk a lot about the low influence of psychoanalysis, and they're very interested in kind of all of these disparate intellectual trends and strands, and how all of these sort of elements come back almost kind of out of dormancy in the 1960s. Yeah, uh, I like the way you you put that. Um, so one thing that I want to be careful not to imply or claim is that the 1960s student movement, the new left, which I assume we'll, we'll sort of get to, to talk about directly was the direct product or, or, you know, the child of this small sectarian group, the new beginning group, which was active in anti-fascist politics in the 1930s. Um, so this is not really, a, my claim is not a genealogical one. Like where does the new left come from? What I, hope to do is to demonstrate, I think, two things. First, um, that the organizational experiments and theoretical experiments undertaken by these radical anti-fascists in the 1930s uh, sort of look like, as a phenomenon, the organizational and theoretical experiments undertaken by the student radicals and other militants of the 1960s. Um, So there's a sort of phenomenology that I'm tracking here. Uh, of, of neo-leftism uh, as this uh, process of breaking from the existing organizations of an established political left and organized labor movement. Um, and as you say, try to do socialism differently. Um, and uh, there are some inherent dilemmas and paradoxes in that, that perhaps we can talk about. So that's one part of the claim I'm making. The other part of the claim is uh, that the individuals uh, who belong to this radical anti-fascist group in Germany. Um, and again, these names may not be so familiar to listeners, but you know, Fritz Erler, Richard Lerventhal, Wolfgang Aventruch, Asif Flechtheim, and we perhaps could write those names in the, the, the notes to the episode. Um, they went on to influential careers in West German uh, and occasionally East German academia, um, uh, in the case of Erler and others like Waldemar von Knöringen, the, the Bavarian Social Democrat, they went into careers in the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party. Um, and by the 1950s and early 60s, 
these former radicals were sort of middle-aged, um, most of them in the West, all the important exceptions of Abendfroh, Flechtheim, and some other left socialists, most of them were defenders now of uh, sort of a social democratic uh, approach to politics, which um, uh, by 1959 officially abandons Marxism as a theoretical paradigm, um, officially abandons um, working class politics in favor of a broad sort of popular politics, you might think of it as middle class professional politics, um, all these processes that are familiar to us from late 20th century center left parties. Um, I, I already recognize uh, as, um, you know, developing uh, circa 1960 in West Germany, at least. Um, uh, so I was interested in sort of doing a collective biography of these individuals, sort of the afterlives of the New Beginning group in the careers of these individuals. And what I found um, was that they ended up occupying either roles of, of being like a, a mentor to the young radicals who are coming of age in the late 50s and early 60s, or like antagonists of these new radicals. So that ironic confrontation, which was a generational confrontation, uh, is what ended up giving the book its its sort of uh, guiding direction and framework. Um, and it was really after doing the empirical work of tracing the collective biography of the New Beginning members that I conceived of the paradigm of New Lefts as this repeated organizational break going back to the 1930s or even earlier in some respects. Um, and, uh, you know, that's kind of what led me to start conceptualizing neo-leftism as a mid-century phenomenon. Um, so I didn't have that concept going into the project. It really emerged later on, um, even after the dissertation was done, um, as I revised it into a book. Okay. So what then is neo-leftism? Because that's really, I think, kind of the framing um, sort of idea of the book is, is that there's this phenomenon of neo-leftism that seemingly you argue is sort of inherent to socialist organizing and socialist theory itself, that there's a kind of inherent both generational and theoretical tension that occurs in a kind of cyclical pattern. And I'm wondering if you could unpack that, but also you, you start the book off in very interestingly, I thought, going very in-depth into the life and thought of George Lukács. And uh, apologies for those who are Hungarian speakers if I butcher the name. And you really go into this example of Lukács as a kind of representative figure where seemingly he represents in his own life and thought and his own development um, both the phenomenon of neo-leftism and then the hardening into kind of an older left wing. And yet somehow, which uh, the way you, you frame your book is really beautiful. I think you, you know, we start with Lukács and then we kind of end with Lukács because then all of these German, you know, leftists who read Dutschke, they're all reading Lukács. Dutschke for his honeymoon goes to visit Lukács. And so like Lukács in his very old age becomes once again, a kind of progenitor of this new left. And so I guess I'm, that's a lot to unpack there, but just sort of, what is this what is this phenomenon neo-leftism, if you can really describe it sort of both theoretically and organizationally, and how, why is Lukács important for understanding neo-leftism? Uh, yeah, those are questions that get to the core of the book. Um, so uh, 
one things that one one main thing that I would like to do with this book is to uh, prompt people to think of new lefts as a broader historical phenomenon that is not uh, um, confined to the late 1950s and 1960s um, in which there was a radical political current across Western Europe in the United States, of course, and even globally that called itself the new left. Um, uh, rather, um, I, as, as I wrote this book, came to the conclusion that there were there was a succession or series of crises uh, in the organizations of um, uh, the political and sort of union organizations of the left across Western Europe. And that's sort of where I was focusing. Um, from the 1930s forward, or even from the 1920s forward, um, and that each of these crises produced organizational experimentation um, that, again, uh, possess certain phenomenological similarities with each other. So the, the, the main sort of conceit of the book is to say that there were new lefts before there was the new left, capital N, capital L. Um, and so the, the two questions you ask go together pretty well. Um, I needed a chapter, a first chapter that connected um, uh, the the revolutions of 1918 to 1919 in Central Europe and the the kind of the fascist crisis moment that saw you know that sort of was the context for explaining the emergence of the New Beginning Group, you know, circa 1930 and forward, and. I decided to focus on the Hungarian uh, Marxist philosopher Georg Lukács for several reasons. Um, uh, one reason is that Lukács was um, a Marxist philosopher who was active in the revolutionary politics of 1918 to 1919. Uh, he served as, uh, you know, a commissar of culture and education in the, the short-lived Hungarian Soviet Republic. Um, he was uh, a close acquaintance of uh, Bela Kuhn and, um, you know, several of the leaders of the Soviet at the time. Um, uh, so in many respects, Lukács at, at that moment, you know, he was in his 30s, I guess, around that time, was uh, paradigmatic for an engaged, committed intellectual of the sort that I would be examining in the decades that followed. But the main reason for choosing Lukács is that um, the theories that he developed, which culminated in this uh, classic work, History and Class Consciousness, published in early 1923, would have an enormous impact on the thinking of Western Marxists for decades that followed. Um, and as I already say, I think in the introduction of the book, um, one of the sort of inspirations for the ideas of the radical new left of the 1950s and 60s uh, was sort of a rediscovery of the work of Lukács, especially the early works um, uh, on tactics and ethics and organizational questions that were that he wrote between 1918 and 1921 or so. Um, and so often this would take the form of uh, pirated editions of Lukács. Uh, and when I was doing some research at the Hamburg Institute for Social Research, they have a great collection of um, they call it gray literature or underground pirated editions of books that were circulated in the 60s. And there's a whole shelf of 
Lukács and Karl Korsch and a number of these other philosophers from the early 1920s who were thinking uh, generally about the crisis of Marxism, um, uh, the uh, tragic division on the left between social democrats and communists, um, and uh, generally trying to reconcile these these uh, longstanding questions of idealism, materialism, and Marxist philosophy, but also questions having to do with the nature of capitalist crises. Um, uh, and so it made sense to go back to Glukash, kind of take him as a prismatic or figure or a lens uh, um, in that first chapter for examining um, the role of radical forms. Uh, so um, I see neo-leftism, or I define neo-leftism in this book as... Um, uh, an attention to radical forms of organizing in the most general sense. Uh, and one hallmark of the early Lukash is that he would examine cultural forms, aesthetic forms, and political forms uh, almost in the same kind of synoptic view. Um, you know, he was known prior to becoming a Marxist for writing a book, for example, on the theory of the novel. So he would examine the novel form as a genre form that had certain limits, had certain possibilities for literature, had certain expressive qualities for it, a genre form that was distinct from the form of an epic or the form of a poem or another form. Um, and what I was noticing as I was reading back through Lukash's work is that uh, when he turned to Marxism uh, in 1918 or so, uh, became you know surprised all his friends when he joined the Communist Party later that year. Uh, he basically transposed directly his theories about aesthetic forms into the political realm. But now, uh, accordingly, he was looking at things like the party form and saying, well, what are the limits and possibilities of organizing oneself like a party? And of course, there are different kinds of parties. There's the Democratic Mass Party. There's a centralized vanguard party. Um, and uh, uh, why is this important? Well, Lukács thought it was important because... Um, uh, he believed at this time that uh, the, the left needed to develop a radical formal break with the existing forms of capitalist society. And at, you know, at that time, he basically thought that the electoral party form had been totally compromised or absorbed or subsumed by the, the sort of um, uh, liberal political context in which electoral democracies developed in capitalism. Um, so when you needed a, a, a party of a new type, which is how he sort of began conceiving of the Communist Party. Um, but, you know, also he was very much open for a little while, at least examining anarchist forms, uh, which were decentralized, federalist, um, which um, rejected hierarchies. Um, and uh, this was a, a time of great uh, creativity in Lukács' thought. Um, again, I'm speaking roughly between 1918-1921, as, as again, he is also engaged politically in revolutionary politics at this time. And I think uh, this formal project of, a, of really paying attention to how one organizes um, as a precondition for uh, sufficiently breaking with the existing capitalist society, um, you know, your radical form is really, in this view, in this approach to politics, the... Um, the sort of uh, proof or credential that you are uh, uh, 
headed in a revolutionary direction. Uh, we kind of consider this prefigurative politics now. That's a term that often is used for you know uh, uh, you know the belief that the form your organization takes must match or correspond to the desired form of the future society that you wish to bring into being. You know, th- you know this uh, uh, period in Lukash's life I see is incredibly generative and uh, almost has a preview of the radical moments that my book goes on to historicize and explain. The moments of radical anti-fascism in the 1930s, the, mo- the moment of uh, left socialism, which was breaking with the post-World War II consensus that was developing in West Germany, France, and the kind of the in, during the era of democratic capitalism, and then finally the anti-authoritarian movement of the 1960s. So again, uh, like I mentioned earlier in my definition of neo-leftism, there's or rather the influence of New Beginning, um, there are two sides to this. There's the direct influence of Lukash's ideas, which are picked up in underground pirated form usually through the decades. Uh, and then there's the more formal uh, or phenomenological similarity between their various crisis moments. And I should say that the Lukash chapter does not really examine his later uh, life when he becomes, um, I wouldn't say a Stalinist, but at least uh, you know accommodates himself to operating within the Communist Party and uh, you know um, tries to keep his head down politically. Yeah, I think he you know sort of the Lukács post history and class consciousness is almost a different sort of intellectual figure entirely and. It, yeah, I mean, he sort of goes off on his own direction, and and he kind of becomes paradigmatic as like the, I mean, yeah, maybe not. A, I don't know. I mean, some people would call him like the philosopher of Stalinism, something like that. But I think this point you made about Lukács is fascinating, and and then it goes into the issue of the interwar left and new beginning and the organization. Is that all of these intellectuals, all these movements are obsessed with organizational form? They're obsessed with what is the proper party form? What is if what is it mean to be a socialist in terms of how do we interact with the world? How do we interact with each other? What are we trying to do? And it seems that this obsession with organization is really what's to my mind when I read your book really stood out to me is that this is what moves this from a purely intellectual history into political organization as showing like these people are trying to have real world impact. They're not just purely doing theoretical discussions for more theoretical discussions. They are trying to figure these issues out so they can implement them you know, in the world so that they can bring people together. And so even if they're very small in number, particularly right, say the org or new beginning, it has an outsized influence in terms of they're actually trying to do something on the ground. And then they're trying to find all these disparate um, influences. You have a really great chapter where you talk about um, like the influence of psychoanalysis, Wilhelm Reich. It's, it's, it's sort of this neo-leftist instinct is very open to kind of heterogeneous influences on the left, it seems like. And with that, though, I'm wondering what happens after the 60s? Because your book sort of ends basically with 68, um, really. And I'm wondering what happens to this neo-leftism? I mean, maybe we don't have to go into it too much because it's not directly what your book is about. But I'm wondering, right, what is, you have this sort of neo-leftist like dialectic that's existing from, say, the end of World War I through 68. Where does it go after 68 or what happened to it? Or is it still applicable in Germany at that time? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, 
So um, I'll, I'll build up to answering the question about where does this history go after 1968 by addressing your comments about the obsession with organization that the subjects of my book uh, seem to have. Um, so uh, this obsession with organization among what might you know appear to be marginal groups, sectarian organizations, the small groups uh, of the left, as opposed to representatives of the mass electoral parties or mass organized labor, um, I think from the outside often very much looks like self-indulgent, um, uh, inward directed obsessions. Um, yeah. And you, you, it's, it's funny you say that now. I just want to mention it briefly because it's also like at the beginning, you also discuss in the book, um, Lenin's, of course, classic work, uh, left-wing communism, infantile disorder. And you almost kind of put Lukács' history and class consciousness and Lenin's left-wing communism as kind of these two works that are going to have a massive influence for the rest of the century. And they both sort of represent these two disparate poles of socialist thought and socialist organization. Yeah. Uh, so Lenin's um, left-wing communism and infantile disorder uh, was published, I think, um, was it 1920, uh, 1921? We can check the notes there. Yeah. Um, and it was aimed at a variety of, um, uh, I guess, um, leftist or, or anarchist organizations in Western Europe primarily um, that uh, were seeking to organize workers' control in a more decentralized fashion that rejected in one way or another, um, the hierarchical party form of what then was becoming sort of the, the standard Orthodox communist party. Uh, it was still a moment of transition. That's why Lenin wrote the pamphlet. He circulated at the Congress of the communist international as a polemical piece. It, uh, this, this work comes, uh, this pamphlet sort of haunts all subsequent, uh, radical left endeavors. Um, uh, as both a challenge to think about, well, um, you know, uh, the the alleged naivete of attempting to model within your own small organization, you know, this desired form of radical equality and democracy that you wish to bring into being, um, uh, and uh, a sort of um, as it became later on, this pamphlet becomes representative of sort of a, of a, of a old left approach to subordinating the present tactics and forms of organization to, um, party discipline and to some idea of, uh, you know, an authoritarian approach to revolution. So, um, in the last chapter of the book, I spend quite some time talking about, um, the French, uh, May movement and, particularly uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, who with his brother wrote a book called Obsolete Communism, A Senile Disorder, which was a, a ca- direct counter pamphlet to Lenin's piece, which was written nearly 50 years before. But in their view, Lenin's castigation of young leftists, uh, and not only young leftists, but let's say leftists young at heart, uh, castigation of them as being you know, naive, romantic, inexperienced, um, you know, basically uh, uh, of failing to recognize that we ought to let the Bolshevik adults in the room do the organizing. 
you know, this itself was a relic of an obsolete form of revolutionary politics and that what one needed to do instead was, uh, you know, uh, open the field for more spontaneous forms of organization, more kind of cultural, uh, decentralized forms of uh, expression uh, and a remaking of everyday life. Um, so this obsession with organization that the subjects of my book seem to have, um, their obsession with radical form, um, really was a series of attempts to con- to conceptualize and practice in a way politics, culture, and alternative uh, economic um, or social forms together um, under the impression that, um, you know, uh, capitalism in its sort of mid 20th century form is a totalizing form of uh, society. Um, And we must remember that this was sort of the, especially in the 1930s onward was a time of, you know, great kind of uh, state capital convergence. Um, uh, Sometimes in the West it's called democratic capitalism sometimes called planned capitalism. It's very much uh, 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 a sort of a negation of that liberal laissez-faire capitalism, which had gone into crisis um, starting in 1929. Um, uh, So it made sense that a lot of these radical leftists would also seek in various moments, anti-authoritarian forms or non-statist forms, because the state as it existed was seemed to be very much compromised um, by capitalist interests, as were the mass parties and unions. There's a, there's of course a tragic quality to um, a lot of these leftist critiques, um, I, and I say tragic, um, and I mean from the per, from our perspective today. <laughs> and this sort of is starting to get into your question about where does this history go after 1968? Um, from our perspective today, uh, a period. Uh, um, we haven't talked about the U.S. yet because the book doesn't really address U.S. history um, directly. But certainly in the West, Western Europe, we live in an era of, you know, very low uh, labor union density. Uh, we have we live in an era that uh, in which there is no longer any mass political organizations of the type that were characteristic of the mass party, which, you know, I always think of a, you know, the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party, is paradigmatic for that, in which you have a party with like over a million members. Um, the SPD in 1914, yeah, over a million members um, uh, in the 1912 elections had you know something like 4.25 million votes um, in a country that's you know like two thirds the size of the U.S. at that time. So uh, this is a you know there's a mark, remarkable density of political and cultural and social organization on the left in the the entire era in which I'm looking for for the most part, Um, uh, 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 which is is a different, completely different world. It's a lost world from our perspective today um, in which, yeah, uh, the the center left parties have basically become um, uh, electoral campaign vehicles. Party membership is not, doesn't really mean much, even in a European context, where at least there's still like the possibility of affiliating yourself with, um, you know, a party whose values and program align more with your interests. 
you know, I, I'm speaking in contrast to the U.S., where we have you know two party system where any kind of affiliation seems to involve compromise, um, and in which party membership is meaningless. Uh, what the only thing that's meaningful are votes, right? Um, uh, from perspective of today, it may look as though the radical left experiments that I outline in the book are, um, uh, you know, targeting institutions like the democratic welfare state, like mass socialist parties, even if they are center left parties, or in the case of the communist party, like a authoritarian Stalinist party, targeting institutions that, uh, you know, we really wish we had now. <laughs> uh, so I think, uh, it's, Abrupt to end the book in 1968. I think 68 is just one of those great historic moments. Um, you know, I talk about the student movement in West Germany and the May movement in primarily in Paris in 1968, although there were certainly fires that were burning all over France and all over the world at that time. Um, uh, it's a symbolic moment that I chose for the end of the book. But in many respects, I think there were some important transformations um, in political economy, in the social uh, conditions in Western Europe, starting the 1970s, moving forward, and important changes in the um, fate of mass parties, uh, the fate of organized labor that basically saw the gradual dismantling of the, the world of the left that had reigned, let's say, for, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the middle five five decades, let's say, fifty years of the twentieth century, and that's the context in which you know I was trying to develop this historical and dialectical concept of neo leftism. That's not to say it doesn't apply outside that context. I hope you know the epilogue of the book suggested some ways in which it might apply, um, and I hope people try to test that concept in their own geographical and chronological areas of expertise, but um, that was sort of the historical frame that I was operating with when I, when I sort of uh, wrote the book. Yeah, it's interesting because it's sort of like, if, if we think of the neo-leftist tendency as a kind of dissidence within the left, if there's not a larger left that exists, then there can't really be dissidents, <laughs> right, at the same time, which is sort of the the tragedy, we could say, it's that with the decline of the mass party movement, with the decline of the welfare state, of both communism and social democracy, this sort of third way, I mean, maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but a kind of like, how would I pray, like this sort of alternative form of socialism, this kind of dissident, more radical, more decentralized, democratic form of socialism that you, that you argue is sort of inherent tendency, that dies out as well. Um, sort of the age of neoliberal capitalism, right? Because now that it doesn't have anything to be, a, a, as I said, a dissident against, it collapses. And I think it's interesting where sort of the way you also frame this neo-leftist development, I think you have a really interesting sort of theoretical section, I think midway through the book, where you sort of mentioned that neo-leftism in all of its iterations represents a kind of rediscovery on the part of people of the left of the early Marx and kind of the totality inherent within like Hegelianism or something like this. Um, and, and let me know if, I, if I'm framing it wrongly, but there's a sort of like inherent sort of eternal recurrence almost of theoretical going back to the source. 
And that I, I thought you, you framed it interestingly where you're saying that in the mid 20th century, capitalism had a more, I guess we could say public totality, right? Where it was, you know, there's the corporation, the corporation is affiliated with the government, there's these mass workers movements, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas now the totality with neoliberal capitalism seems to be just so diffused, right? It might be that the totality is even more totalizing because it's so hard to sort of pinpoint where it is. And, and maybe I'm sort of, you know, getting a little too abstract here, but how do you think, how would you frame that in terms of making sense of this concept of totality and mid-century capitalism and capitalism today and this sort of returnal, re, re, like, uh, rediscovery of early Marx and kind of the Hegelian um, elements in the early Marx that, that animate neo-leftism? Uh, that's a good question. And, and I think it addresses maybe the intellectual complement to the various organizational processes that the book examines. Um, uh, I should say that, you know, I, I want to uh, avoid implying or claiming that neo-leftism is primarily an intellectual phenomenon uh, that has a certain con- a theoretical content that's related to you know, various strands of Western Marxism, because to claim that sort of would lead one into an idealist argument about a recurrence of a certain mm-hmm. form of theory. And that's really not the method that I bring to this book. However, you are right. I think the, uh, certainly from the 1930s through the 1960s, various generations of leftists in Germany throughout Western Europe, um, did uh, uh, sort of rediscover this Hegelian Marxist moment um, uh, embodied, at least in Karl Marx's work, uh, you know, leading up to the Communist Manifesto, um, so the early Marx, um, in which there's a fundamental um, Marxist humanism, um, uh, which I think was attractive to many leftists who had an idea of uh, radically remaking forms of social life and the human um, uh, as a necessary component of, you might say, a cultural component to the revolutionary project of overthrowing capitalism. Um, uh, And this uh, concept of totality, which um, also is present, I think, in Marx's various commentaries on Hegel, was attractive to these generations of 20th century leftists um, because uh, it was a way to not only um, make sense of the interconnections between the various parts of the global capitalist system in any given time, so the synchronic totality uh, of of understanding, you know, relations of imperial domination, you know, a global division of labor, um, uh, you know, seeing why it mattered, like the politics you were pursuing in, in say Paris or Berlin, why that would be connected to the, you know, you know, if we're talking about the sixties to the anti-colonial struggles of people in Vietnam or South America, but totality also in the Hegelian Marxist sense provided a, way of making sense of historical trajectories. So this would be the diachronic concept of totality. Um, and uh, it would allow, say, 60s radicals to see the affinities or relationship between their politics and the revolutionary politics of 
1917, 1918, 1919, um, as part of this related series of actions, um, building up toward, um, you know, uh, a revolutionary overthrow. And I think in the later period, you know, as criticisms mounted of this Hegelian sort of talos of history, which, you know, in Marx's conception takes the form of a, a revolution to abolish class society, um, you know, working through that material, um, uh, uh, allow many leftists to finally give up on the idea of a rev- cataclysmic revolutionary break as the end of history. Um, so I don't mean to say that uh, by rediscovering the works of the early Marx or this Western Marxist heritage, all these leftists then became converted to uh, that way of thinking. This material uh, rather gave them an opportunity to develop their own critical self-reflection. And you see this like especially in that great um, uh, uh, French journal, Socialism or Barbarism, um, whose main progenitors people might know is Cornelius Castoriadis and Claude Lefort. Uh, they were interested simultaneously in organizational problems on the left uh, and engaged in some various forms of, um, you know, uh, I guess sectarian organizing and organizing workplaces. And in these um, and kind of working through the concept of totality and other concepts from the Hegelian Marxist tradition. Um, it's a wonderful journal, uh, and some of, some of it's been translated, um, uh, especially on the uh, great website Viewpoint Magazine, um, if people are interested in digging into some of those old socialism and barbarism debates. Great. And so maybe as we're getting sort of near kind of the end of the discussion, I want to ask then maybe about sort of the ending of the book where you have the figure of Rudy Dushki, sort of another kind of biographical figure in this tale that you're, you're telling. And how does Dushki fit into the neo-leftist paradigm? Like how is he influenced by members of, the, of their former members of the New Beginning movement? And how does Dushki in his own actions and in his own sort of obsessive you know, self-examination and reevaluation of theory and of organization. How does he represent neo-leftism? Yeah, so Rudy Duchko was um, born in in what would become East Germany, uh, and um, you know he was he was sort of a teenager in um, the late nineteen fifties and was um, going to school in West Berlin circa 1961 and then the wall was built and he sort of became a refugee in West Berlin. Um, uh, he had been socialized into the free German youth, which was the communist youth organization of the German democratic Republic. Um, he also was socialized into sort of a, um, socially conscious Protestantism. And, and, uh, I believe he retained his faith even, uh, until his, his, his death in the late 1970s. So, there are some unique components to Duchka's origins and socialization. The fact that he had this kind of radical Christian side of him, in addition to being very well-versed in, um, you know, Marxism and Leninism. Um, so his neo-leftist moment, I think though, comes when he joins um, this, uh, this group, which was founded by Dieter Kultelmann and some others in Southern Germany called Subversive Action. Uh, this was in the early 1960s. And Subversive Action um, had kind of, it was sort of ahead of its time in so far as it 
uh, was influenced by the provosts and situationists and was conceiving of these sort of public interventions, these subversive actions. Um, uh, they had of this concept of homo subversivus, the subversive human, uh, that would sort of jolt people out of their complicity uh, or, I guess, out of, out of their sort of general kind of um, uh, assimilation into uh, the democratic capitalist societies and sort of reveal an expose kind of way the contradictions and violence of the system. Uh, Dujka was sort of involved in this group. Um, and then they got the idea that what they ought to do is infiltrate what was at the time the um, social democratic youth group, the, the German social democratic youth league, the, which had the acronym SDS, which uh-huh. it shared with the, the U S <laughs> students for democratic society, even though there was no relationship between them really. Um, so the German West German SDS um, which I, I chronicle this in the book, had a dramatic break with the with their parent party, the, S, the SPD, um, around 1960-61. And um, this was all related to the SPD's uh, abandonment of Marxism, the purge of leftists from its ranks. Um, and uh, eventually, um, the SPD declared that membership in the SDS is irreconcilable with membership in the party. So this resulted in the breakaway of the SDS from the SPD. So Duchka and his fellows in the subversive action were like, SDS, it's a university group of radical leftists that has several thousand members across West Germany. We ought to infiltrate this group and kind of capture it. Um, in the process of this Leninist infiltration, though, I think Duchka in particular realized that um, this conspiratorial tactic was not appropriate to the conditions of the West German parliamentary democracy of the time. Um, uh, it really was contrary to his own sort of democratic inclinations, um, and that, uh, uh, um, the SDS ought to be run as a sort of open, transparent organization, um, and, uh, could still, you know, without conspiratorial means still act as a vanguard of what was then emerging as an extra parliamentary opposition in West Germany, especially in opposition to the debates about the emergency laws, which were then being debated in the German Bundestag, which basically meant the suspension of the constitution if the government were to declare emergency. This was all bringing back memories of fascism, right? So um, if the SPD was considering signing on to these emergency laws, then uh, the SPD itself had to be opposed by an extra parliamentary opposition. So Duchka changes his his ways basically abandons the subversive action approach and then becomes a leading spokesman publicly openly for this SDS, um, which was much more decentralized in its organization, um, gave a lot freer reign to its various chapters at the West German universities. Um, and it was in the context of just being a university student and then starting his graduate student studies at the free university in West Berlin that, Duchka encountered some of these veterans of New Beginning. Uh, Ricard Lerventhal was the main one. He took several courses with Lerventhal. Lerventhal was then in his 50s or 60s, so there's that generational divide. Um, Lerventhal, by that time, was an ardent anti-communist. He was still a social democrat, but I think maybe he either would be in the center or maybe even the right wing of the party at that time. Um, uh, but Lerventhal was a, was a real expert on 
Marxism and Leninism on the politics of world communism. And these were the seminars that he was teaching and uh, in which Duchka participated. So the teacher was far less radical than the student in this scenario. And one of the iconic episodes that I share in the book is in 1967, where there's this big public debate and several representatives were representing the, you know, were, were there for the radical students, including Duchka. And there were several representatives basically defending the, the establishment social democratic line uh, that we need to work through the Bundestag, uh, that the SPD's goal should be to enter government. Um, I guess by 1967, they had, in fact, entered the Great Coalition. Um, and I think we're on the eve at that point of becoming the majority party in West Germany. Um, and uh, Duchka pulls out of his pocket some pamphlets and starts reading from them. And the words should have sounded familiar to Ricard Lerventhal because they were words he wrote in the 1930s when he was the young firebrand of Neu Beginnen, the, the New Beginning group. Um, so Duchka is very much, you know, using this blast from the past, these words uh, when the, you know, from the teacher's own radical youth to kind of remind him that, uh, you know, the uh, subversive radical uh, movement basically needs to be aimed against the old left just as much as it ought to be aimed against the powers of capital and the state. And that, um, you know, the capacity for uh, developing administrative capabilities, or, or, or should I say the, the sort of power to um, uh, develop expertise, you know, ration, expertise in rational administration, all these things um, could develop within the revolutionary movement itself, Duchka thought, and he was quoting Lerventhal, the young Lerventhal, and were not capacities that uh, solely belong to basically the, you know, competent technocrats in government, which the older Lerventhal was implying uh, in that debate. So this is just one of many generational confrontations um, with which the, the book culminates in its uh, final chapter. Okay, great. Fascinating. And just to wrap things up then, um, you do have your ending chapter with a very sort of brief discussion of Black Lives Matter um, and kind of current left-wing sort of political rumblings. Um, and I was wondering, that being the case, if, there, if you think that there's a, a major sort of lesson or a kind of um, something that, say, current left-wing organization you think could learn from your book. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, um, just a small question. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I do have, uh, an epilogue that tries to make sense of, uh, this history from the 1970s to the present. Um, and also tries to sort of explain, I think in very brief and probably terms, which will be controversial among Americanists, why the U S new left doesn't quite fit into my paradigm of neo-leftism as it's described in the book. And I suppose we don't have time to get into it. It has to do with the fact that, you know, the U.S. has never had mass parties of the left. You know, even the Socialist Party of, of America reached peak membership in 1912 with, you know, something like, um, I think, 118,000 people, which was just a fraction of what the mass parties in Europe were reaching. The Communist Party of the U.S., reached peak membership in 1947, I think with something like 75,000 members. Um, and of course, party membership is not the only way to 
track the influence. There are many you know, readers of the newspapers and front organizations, and et cetera. But the fact is, I don't think there was a highly organized old left in the U.S. Um, so even though U.S. new left emerges in the late 50s and 1960s, um, I think its primary um, target is Cold War liberalism. Um, and in many respects, the successes of the new left in the United States and democratizing society um, and, you know, fighting for civil rights, um, uh, fighting for greater forms of participatory democracy, fighting for women's rights, gay rights, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, into the 1970s, insofar as this was a success, really it bolstered an alternative form of liberalism. And I don't want to suggest that what resulted from these movements was something like a neoliberal consensus, although I know there are some on the left today who would like to make that argument about the U.S. new left. I only su- suggest that the European new lefts were still very much rooted within this highly organized world of labor and world of left politics. Um, so there's some incommensurability there. So I only say that to set up my answer to your question, um, particularly you know why it is that I mentioned Black Lives Matter and other democratic socialists of America and other U.S. examples in the epilogue of the book. I do think that a lot of the dynamics of um, neo-leftist organizing and theory that I examine in the book are relevant to current organizational debates on the left um, and debates in, among theorists of left organization concerning the party form, You know whether it makes sense to try to rebuild something like a centralized disciplined party or, you know, this is kind of a perennial debate, whether like um, Occupy style um, anarchist decentralized forms are the preferable uh, uh, way of organizing, right? Um, uh, I don't think the book provides any answers or lessons. It it certainly provides historical context for thinking through these problems. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, when leftists start debating forms of organization, it's useful not to reinvent the wheel. I think it's useful to have some historical context and understanding to see how this problem was addressed and never solved, but at least, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, there were attempts to solve this problem in different historical moments at different phases of capitalist development. Um, And uh, looking at something like Black Lives Matter today, uh, which I don't think really arose out of any organized left, but did arise in opposition to a certain consensus liberalism. You know, it arose uh, under the, you know, first wave of BLM was under the Obama presidency. Um, uh, and, you know, second wave is, was under Trump. Um, uh, but it really, uh, I think Black Lives Matter, especially the second wave, which was larger, more sustained, and involved more diverse sectors of the population. So I, I don't want to suggest that you know um, uh, anyone but black activists were taking the lead, but certainly in 2020 there were many non-black people showing solidarity in the streets, uh, more so than the first wave of BLM in 2014-15. Um, this really, I think, had the potential, or it still has the potential, to reignite um, anti-establishment politics. Uh, it really shows the promise of mass organizing, mass politics. Uh, There's, I think, a real 
latent revolutionary force um, in the U.S. Um, and uh, as we saw with the number of BLM protests throughout Europe and the rest of the world, that this is a force that exists elsewhere too. Um, it's almost a, uh, uh, and I don't want to be too teleological here, but it's a, a latent force that's in search for organizational form. Now, the irony, however, and this last thing I'll say, uh, yeah. is that the, um, you know, given what I said before about the low labor union density and the real lack of mass organizational forms, the irony now is that our new left for the 21st century might actually look like an antiquarian revival of old forms. What we really do need is a mass party, in my opinion. Um, and uh, it's, I think if that were to happen, um, and, and that's a big if, there are a lot of factors that would go into even expanding the influence of smaller leftist parties like D. Lincoln in Germany, which just had a terrible showing in the latest federal election. Um, but say like, for some miraculous reason, a socialist party were to form as a third party in the U.S. Um, uh, uh, in that scenario, if I'm right in my historical analysis, and miraculously we do get a mass party to the left, then there will be a dialectical process in which alternative neo-leftist formations will proliferate. And I think that's a good thing. I think that let a hundred flowers bloom. I uh, realize that there will be some people who regret the fragmentation and disunity that would appear to result from such, um, you know, proliferation of small groups. But uh, in my history, this uh, explosion of new lefts, plural, has always accompanied crises, general crises uh, in society, but also crises on the left and has often been a real demonstration of the creative capacities of leftists um, and has shown the vitality of um, alternative forms of organization and basically uh, uh, anti-capitalist alternatives. Some, often when the mass organizations of the left are totally prostrate or defeated. So that's all to say that the irony of our current moment may be a return to the old left <laughs> rather than a revival of um, historical new lefts. Great. You know, sort of maybe the, the corny joke, everything old truly is new again. Um, I think we're going to end until it, it there. <laughs> until it is until, until it's old again. Yeah. Um, so Terry, this has been great. Um, I strongly encourage all of the listeners to buy the book. It's great. It's fascinating. Um, one of the best sort of mix of, I guess we'd say theory and praxis in terms of intellectual history that I've read. You will learn a lot. Terry, this has been such a great time talking with you. Um, thank you all for listening. Um, and I'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you so much.